Well, today we're going to be going through um, just a great prayer of Paul's in Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, if you want to turn in there. And uh, anyway, you know, our Lord Jesus said this in John 16, 24. He said, until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Alvin Vandergrind in his devotional, Love to Pray, one of my favorite devotionals, says this. By offering to let us pray in his name, Jesus is offering an amazingly great privilege. It's as if he's giving us blank checks to be drawn on his account, knowing we will use them for his honor and his advantage. Jesus is demonstrating great trust in us. He's trusting that his honor and his interests are safe in our hands. Consider what it would mean to place your estate in the hands of another person. Your credit cards, your home, your investments, your automobiles, your responsibilities, everything. You'd pick that person carefully, wouldn't you? You'd really be giving that person control over your life and your future. That's essentially what Jesus did when he authorized us to use his name in prayer. He gave us authority over his accounts. He asked us to exercise control over his estate, the kingdom of God. We exercise authority by prayer. By prayer, we ask the Father for all we need in order to do the job. By prayer, we ask God to deal with demonic forces contrary to his will. By prayer, we direct God's grace and power to strategic locations where it is needed. I like what um, a Tory said. He said, little prayer, little power, much prayer, much power. You know, prayer is a wonderful privilege for the believer. Over the years, I've noticed in my own life and the lives of many believers a lack of enthusiasm about prayer. You know why? Well, there's several reasons why. One, we pray for things, but we really don't expect anything to happen. We have a, a concept of God that's low, and we really don't believe deep down that he's able to pull it off by the way we pray. We major on physical and, and minor on the spiritual. We pray for colds, bills, jobs, trips, and homes. These are good things to pray for, but don't neglect the spiritual things. We're spiritual beings who are going to live forever. Let's not neglect praying for spiritual power, spiritual maturity, spiritual knowledge, and salvation for the lost. We lack confidence in prayer. How do we know God's going to answer my prayers? Well, how, how can we pray with faith, spiritual power, and confidence? I believe that Paul gives us a model prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, which we're going to look at this morning. But before we do that, would you just bow with me? Father, I pray that as we look at this great section of Scripture today, that you'll help me to unpack all that's in this. There's so much in here. Lord, would you prepare our hearts and our minds that we will hear from you. We will listen to your words. And Lord, as a result, may we have a different view, a different passion for prayer in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, as we look at this prayer this morning, I want you to see the elements of a prayer that will make a powerful spiritual impact 
on your life and the lives of others. First of all, Paul starts here by talking about the believer's family here in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. He starts with humility before the Father. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Well, as Pastor Phil often reminds us, whenever you see the words, for this reason, you got to ask, for what reason? You need to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and read the first 13 verses to see the reason he's talking about. See, Paul said a stewardship of grace had been given to him. God revealed a mystery to him. He said this mystery is that Jews and Gentiles are now, now members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul was made a minister of this gospel by God's grace and given the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ so that through the church, God's eternal purpose would be revealed on earth and heaven. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. What's the significance of kneeling or bowing one's knees? You can pray with many postures, as you know. The Bible talks about standing in prayer, lifting your hands in prayer, sitting while praying, falling on your face, kneeling in prayer. I like to walk while I pray. I like to go on prayer walks. I believe that kneeling, though, is symbolic of humility and submission. Warren Wearsby, who's a well-known pastor and author, points out this must have been quite an experience for the Roman soldier chained to Paul to see Paul kneeling next to him, talking to his father in heaven. I like to kneel sometimes in prayer because it reminds me of my dependence on God and my littleness before him. You know, in an article entitled Leaving a Legacy of Prayer, Chris Barrett describes the impact that Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, made on her son Franklin Graham. Listen to what she says. Several months after his mother died, Franklin Graham remarked, I'll never forget the first time my mother heard me preach. Standing at the podium and seeing her in the shadows, I realized just how much that moment represented an answer to her faithful prayers. To follow in my father's footsteps, I had to go through my mother's knee prints. Ruth Graham's giant knee prints are an amazing testimony of the way a life of prayer can leave a spiritual legacy. Many a night when the children crept past Ruth's room, they found her, Bible in hand, kneeling by her bed, speaking to the Lord. When asked by the press how she raised five children with her husband, Dr. Billy Graham, frequently gone, she replied, on my knees. You know, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. So Paul starts his prayer by saying, I'm bowing my knees before the Father. And then he talks about the fatherhood of God here in verse 15 when he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You know, God the Father is the source of all families. He's the primary and foremost father. We all come from Adam, the first man, and he came from God. Luke said this in, in Acts 17. Listen to what he said. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You know, God is the father of all by virtue of creation. He created all of us, even the angels in heaven. But God is the father of all believers by virtue of regeneration, by being born again. You know, as a father, I realized the responsibility I had to teach my boys what a father is like. None of us are perfect. God is the perfect father, and he teaches us what a true father is like. You know, one of the plagues of our nation and our world is that many people grow up not having a father or knowing their father. I read on the internet just the other day that according to the U.S. Census Bureau of just a couple years ago, 19.7 million children, more than one in four, live without a father in the home. Consequently, there's a father factor in nearly all the social ills facing America today. Let us never underestimate the difference a father makes in the family. Amen? You know, next Sunday is Father's Day. It's a good opportunity to honor and pray for the many fathers that bless so many of our lives. Well, Paul recognized the fatherhood of God in prayer. Some people, sometimes people ask me, Pastor Dave, how should I address God when I pray? Well, we need to remember that God is three persons and one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's a triune God. If you come in prayer saying, Lord Jesus or Holy Spirit or Heavenly Father, it's all right with God. He wants you to come to him. You're not going to get reprimanded because you said the wrong title. But I do remember that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. I guess I prefer to address the Father or Lord when I pray, but that's really up to you. You know, Paul goes on in this passage, and he gives a petition that he prays for the Ephesians. It's very, very interesting. In verses 16 to 19, first of all, he prays that the Spirit will strengthen your inner being. Look at verse 16 with me that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I want you to notice something here. Paul prays that they will be strengthened with power, not out of the riches of his glory, but according to the riches of his glory. What's the difference? Wearsby points out the first is a portion, the second is a proportion. For example, let me give you an illustration. Perhaps you heard on the news recently about a billionaire named Robert F. Smith who was invited to be a commencement speaker at a college in Atlanta, Georgia. He stunned the college grads with a promise to pay all their student loans, estimated to be about $40 million. He said, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus and you can pay forward later. One young man started crying because he had a student loan of $200,000 and he had estimated it was going to take him 25 years, half of his salary to pay it off, and in an instant, it was gone. 
Now, if Robert F. Smith gave the students a gift of $500, that'd be nice. They'd be appreciative of it. But a gift of $500 from Robert F. Smith would be out of his riches. A gift of paying off the loans was according to his riches. The first is a portion, the second a proportion. Paul prayed the Ephesians would be strengthened with power according to the riches of God's glory. And his glory is infinite. His riches are infinite. And then he prayed that, that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You know, this word here, power, is the Greek word dunamis. We get dynamic and dynamite from it. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to live the Christian life. I want to give you two illustrations, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. Turn with me in your Bible, or maybe it's up here, Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah, the, the um, exiles had gone back to the land. They started building the temple. They were opposed by the enemies, and it took them. They built the foundation, but they didn't get the temple fixed. So God sent a prophet by the name of Zechariah, a powerful prophet, to speak to them. And this is what happened in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will, shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. You see, he's saying, Zerubbabel, it's not by might, not by human might, not by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And, and he was able to accomplish what God asked him to do in building that temple because God's power was working through him. Paul is praying that they will be strengthened with God's power through the spirit. Another example is Acts chapter 1, the early church. Acts 1, beginning with verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then later, a couple chapters later, the early church Acts 4, 31 to 33, listen to what happened. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
You know, Warren Wearsby commented on this. He said, as you read the book of Acts, you see the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, for there are some 59 references to the Spirit in the book, or one-fourth of the total references found in the New Testament. Someone once said, if God took the Holy Spirit out of this world, most of what we Christians are doing would go right on, and nobody would know the difference. Sad but true. You see, Paul said, you Ephesians, I want you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. Because when we're empowered by God's Spirit, we do God's work, and it's significant. You know, this word strengthen here in the Greek means to fortify, to brace, to invigorate. And you know what? It's in the passive voice. In other words, God does the fortifying and the invigorating through his spirit. He's the one who does it. We are strengthened in our inner being. What's that? It's the spiritual dimension, the new nature created in the image of God. Look at uh, Ephesians 4, verse 20. Paul talks about it here. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is, is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So how are we strengthened by his spirit in our inner man? It's when we're filled with the spirit, when we submit to God's spirit, when we allow him to control us. It's when we are being led by his spirit. Those who walk by the spirit are the ones who are filled with the spirit. So Paul was praying that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. But he goes on here and he prays that Christ will be at home in your heart. Look at verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. According to Barclay, the Greek word for dwell here is the word used for permanent as opposed to temporary residence. Wearsby says it means to settle down and feel at home. You know, when Pam and I and the boys moved to Brentwood in the early 90s, the first time we came to Golden Hills because I served in a pastorate between, uh, we rented a house for a few months and then we bought a house. When we came back in 2006, again, we rented a house for a few months and then we bought a home. I want to tell you there's a difference between the house that we were renting and the house we bought because when you buy it and you start living there, you start settling into it. And that's what it's talking about here. The Lord wants to be at home permanently in our hearts. Could this be what Jesus was talking about in John 15 when he wrote this? Listen to it. John 15, beginning with verse 1. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Abiding is another word for dwelling. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Robert Munger, a number of years ago, wrote a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. We have some copies of it in the prayer room. If afterwards, if you want to go there, we could probably give you one. But he compares our heart to a home. Each room represents different areas of our life. For example, the study is the thought life. The kitchen are our appetites. The rec room is our entertainment. The, the living room is the place of communion. And then there's a secret closet that none of us want anybody to go into, including the Lord. You know, in this book, he explains that when the Lord's living in our heart, when he's dwelling in our heart, he wants access to the whole home. And if there's rooms you're saying, Lord, you're not welcome here, he's not going to be at home in your heart. So let me ask you, is Christ at home in your heart? Are there any rooms in your heart where he's not welcome? You know, Harold Honer in his commentary on Ephesians writes, it denotes the desire that Christ may literally be at home in, that is, at the very center of or deeply rooted in the believer's lives. They are to let Christ become the dominating factor in their attitudes and conducts. And that's what Paul's praying for, that Christ will be in the ho at home in the hearts of these believers. But then he goes on, and he also prays that you will know how much Christ loves you in verses 17, 18, and 19. Listen to what he says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Christ's love for you is an established fact. Did you know that? He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, you are rooted in love. He uses a metaphor here from nature. In the same way that trees are rooted deep in the soil to obtain nourishment and water, we must be deeply rooted in God's love. You know, over the years, God has used many things in my life to help me sink my roots deep into his love. But I want to tell you, the word of God is the soil that we put our roots deep into if we want to know his love. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 1, 1 to 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. People, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who delights in God's word and meditates on it is like a fruitful tree planted by streams of water. Paul prayed that they would be rooted in his love, and then he prayed that they would be grounded in his love. What does that mean? 
Whenever they build a skyscraper or any large building, they must spend an enormous amount of time and resources preparing the foundation. Why? Without a good foundation, the building will fail. Did you know the foundation of the One World Trade Center in New York City has a depth of 110 feet? Likewise, we need to be grounded in God's love. The Ephesus course here at Golden Hills is very helpful for me to become more grounded in God's love. And if you haven't taken it, I would recommend that course. You know, the Apostle Paul, who's the author of this epistle, went through the most trying of circumstances. How did he make it through? He shares his conviction with the Romans in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Listen to what he wrote. For I am sure, grounded, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? <laughs> Rooted and grounded in God's love. But he goes on and he says that you will be able to comprehend his love through faith. Look at verse 18 again. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This word for know is the Greek word gnosko. It means a personal knowledge, an experiential knowledge. Paul wants God to give them the power to grasp and apprehend the amazing love of Christ. People, it cannot be understood on a human level. It must be revealed. As Harold Horner puts it, the more a Christian knows about Christ, the more amazed he is in Christ's love. Do you have any idea how much Christ loves you? Well, Paul says, I want you to know the width of his love. It encompasses everyone, all races, social status, gender, and abilities. Galatians 3, 27, 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He wants you to know the length of Christ's love. Just think about the length of God's love. He left his glory in heaven, became a man, a servant, and died a cruel death on the cross to save us from our sins. Romans 5.8, for God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 8.9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. As Charles Wesley put it in his wonderful hymn, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, the length of his love. He wants you to know the height of his love. How high is God's love? You know, Psalm 103, 11 states, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love, his hesed, toward those who fear him. Do you know how high the heavens are above the earth? 
Scientists estimate the known universe stretches more than 30 billion light years. That's 200 sextillion miles. That's more than some of you commute in a week. <laughs> That's how great God's love is. How about the depth of his love? Do you understand the depth of God's love for you? Micah 7:19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The Daily Walk a while back had an illustration that if you were to drop an anchor in the Pacific Ocean over the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest spot in Earth's oceans, an hour later, it would not have touched bottom seven miles below. In fact, the famed movie director James Cameron took a sub to the bottom of the Marianas Trench on May 23rd, 2013. Such is the depth of God's love for you. He has cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. My friends, when you understand this kind of love, I mean really understand it, you experience it, if you know it in your inner being, you will be moved to action. That's why John wrote this in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 3, 16, he said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul wrote this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When you know his amazing love, it, it motivates you to love. That's why Jesus said, love one another as I love you. But also Paul goes on, he prays that they will be filled to all the fullness of God. Look at verse 19 again. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul put it this way. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, of the fullness of Christ. Colossians 2, 6, 9, and 10 says this, listen. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is not saying that we become gods in some new age sense. What it's saying is that God's purpose or goal for our lives is to become progressively more like Christ. We know the fullness of God dwells in him and we are in Christ. Spiritual maturity is being conformed to his image. Someday in heaven we will be just like him when we are in his presence. William Hendrickson in his commentary seeks to explain what the fullness of God means because it's not easy to understand and this is what he says. But what Paul prays is that those addressed may be filled to all the fullness of God. Perfection, in other words, also in such matters as knowledge, love, blessedness, must ever remain the goal to become more and more like God, the ultimate ideal 
What Paul is asking, therefore, with special reference, of course, to the church still on earth, though the answer to the prayer will never cease, is nothing strange, nothing new. It is a request similar to the exhortation in Ephesians 5.1. Be therefore imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a fragrant odor. So to be filled with the fullness of God means that you become more and more like Jesus. You're being conformed to his image. That's what Paul was praying for, that they would become mature, more and more like Christ. You know, as Paul was given this prayer, he just broke out in a doxology. He broke out in a praise. He couldn't help himself. And that's what the last two verses are. First of all, he says, God is able to do more than you can imagine. Verse 20, look at it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. People, God is able to do more than you can ask or even imagine. The word here for abundantly means superabundantly quite beyond all measure. The form is used as the highest form of comparison imaginable. How does he do it? Through the power, the dunamis, that's working in us, that resurrection power that's in us. He listened to a man named Joshua, and the sun stopped moving for a whole day. Later, he conquered a wall city by having the people march around it and then shout. Gideon de defeated hundreds, 120,000 Midianites with 300 men. A small shepherd boy named David defeated a mighty Philistine giant. King Hezekiah defeated 185,000 Assyrians. Why? Or how? By trusting in God. And you know what? God took a handful of disciples in Israel in the first century and started a church that now numbers between one and two billion people worldwide. He's able to do far beyond we can imagine. James Boyce, in a devotional on Romans, gives a wonderful illustration of how God does more than we can even imagine. Listen to this story. Let me tell you one story of such a blessing. In the year 1860, a Scotsman by the name of Robert Haldane went to Switzerland. Haldane was a godly layman who, with his brother James Alexander, had been much used to the Lord in Scotland. In Geneva, on this particular occasion, he was sitting on a park bench in the garden in the open air and heard a group of young men talking. As he listened, he realized two things. First, these were theological students. Second, they were ignorant of true Christianity. As a result of this encounter and after a few encouraging conversations, Haldane invited the students to his room and began to teach them the Book of Romans. God honored this work, and the Holy Spirit blessed it by the conversions of these young men. They were converted one by one, and in turn, they were instrumental in a religious revival that not only affected Switzerland, but also spread to France and the Netherlands. And then Boyce says this, listen. Why should it be any different today? Why should it be any different today? 
If it were our gospel, we would expect nothing. But it's not our gospel. It's the gospel of God, that grand old gospel that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures and achieved for us by the Lord Jesus Christ through his substitutionary death and resurrection. We should proclaim it fearlessly and with zeal, as did Paul. Amen? The prophet Jeremiah exclaimed, O Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Let me ask you, in light of this verse, how would you answer God? Would you answer, Lord, I'm sure this can be done, or Lord, I'm not sure this can be done. I'm not sure it's possible. What are you having trouble today believing God for? Could it be that your God is too small? He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think by the power that's at work within us. And why does God do all this? Why did Paul pray this prayer that all things are done for his glory? Look at how he ends it in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The reason we live and serve God is to bring glory to his name, to honor him. That's what we were singing about earlier. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our purpose as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who will impact every area of the world for Christ. Warren Wiersbe clarifies our purpose with these words. He says, the church on earth is here to glorify the Son of God. If our motive is to glorify God by building his church, then God will share his power with us. The power of the Spirit is not a luxury. It's a necessity. But the amazing thing is that what we do in his power today will glorify Christ throughout all ages, world without end. The church's greatest ministry is yet to come. What we do here and now is preparing us for the eternal ages when we shall glorify Christ forever. You know, I would encourage you this week to take some time to pray this great prayer of Paul's for your family, your church, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Uh, I put a copy of it in the sermon notes page or you can take it right out of the Bible. It's not copyrighted, you know. <laughs> but take that prayer and pray it. And I'm going to end my message here this morning by praying for you and for those who are online. I'm going to pray this prayer for us. So would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to all the fullness of God. And we pray this prayer, Lord, for your glory forever and ever.
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.